everyone. Welcome back to The Well. I'm your host, Dylan Bowman. I'm going to try and keep the intro short today because the subject matter is pretty self-explanatory, and our guest this week should not need much introduction. Today, we're talking to the immensely tough and awesome Megan Hicks. Most of you will know Megan as the managing editor of ironfar.com, the world leader in news and race coverage in the world of trail and ultra running, but she is also a super strong athlete herself with a long list of accomplishments that makes me feel lazy and that I think largely gets overshadowed by her work as a journalist. Among other things, Megan has won the Marathon de Saab, she's finished the Tour de Jeans, she's done the Bob Graham Round, and just last week she finished the brutal Nolan's 14 in Colorado for the second time. More impressively, she was able to do it in FKT fashion, becoming the first woman to successfully finish twice. She is a, a really great athlete, as I mentioned, and it was really fun to be able to interview her and share that part of her story with you all, uh, and especially for those who may only know her from when she's the one doing the interviewing. Before we get to it, I wanted to just uh, do a, an unprompted call of support, 100% not requested by Megan. Um, and for those of you who can spare it, I just want to encourage you to support I Run Far on Patreon or with a one-time donation on their website, um, just as a show of gratitude for the immense value they provide to our sport. I would appreciate it, and I'm sure they would as well. You can find links for how to do that in the show notes of this episode. And quickly, before we get to the interview, I have a special treat to share with you, that being the third installment of Deb's Poetry Corner. This is an occasional feature of the show in which my mother-in-law, Deborah Buchanan, shares one of her poems with us. Now, this particular poem is about wildfires, and though she wrote it in 2017, it is obviously and sadly very relevant today when much of the American West is currently on fire. She read it to me recently, and uh, I felt it was really beautiful and wholly appropriate to share on the show this week. So, please enjoy this poem entitled Circulation, followed immediately by my interview with Megan Hicks. This time I'm going to read a poem that I wrote a few years ago, which sadly is still extremely, unfortunately, very appropriate. So, here it is. And actually, before I read about it, I would like to give a shout out to Nostos, the journal in which it's published, their latest issue. They're out of San Rafael. It's Nostos, and it's their science and poetry issue. Circulation. Smoke-filled air, gray, a sheen of yellow, settles around trees and buildings. The summer sun's blaze is muted by ash from wildfires of the hottest summer and the hottest burns. Columbia Gorge no longer smolders, but central Oregon wheat fields catch fire and Siskiyou forests flare into California, joining still flickering conflagrations. 
The North Cascades, jagged landscapes of snow and rivers rarely dry, are burning. The winds meander and merge, and we struggle in these clouds of shifting color. What is it we are breathing? Two million acres ignited, and what were they? What have they become? The skies glint orange with fiery incandescence. The pines, ponderosa, lodgepole, and bristlecone. Aspens with their ever-quaking leaves, the tamaracks, the firs, and into coastal ranges, cedars and willows and cottonwoods along coursing water, all aflame. Wildflowers scorched, native columbines, scarlet Indian paintbrush, avalanche lilies at snow's edge, the summer bare grass blooms, carbonized and turned to ash. So too the animals, deer and elk, bear and cougar, high mountain marmots. Some escape wild and thirsty. In a cauterized world, many do not. Smoke rises, turns as currents, mixing Rocky Mountain air, northwest winds, and billows from California, expanding and becoming this strange being or after being, a ghost, a reminder of what was, and we breathe it in and out. Our planet floats in space, small and blue, clouds of white, sun reflecting off watery surfaces. Alone and beautiful, the air swirling and condensing. The atmosphere, its own closed system of breath. The planet also respiring. Every breath is shared. We inhale what has given life, then give back, continually feeding the river of birth. Daily, we breathe atoms from the words of Chinese poets and from planters of maize. Each of us taking in these lives, every being a small cell in the enveloping clouds. And now we breathe in the gasps of an ignited planet, an atmosphere of carbon and smoke, a planet damaged by willful ignorance. Our greed and selfishness burn. They light the flames consuming green tendrils, forest needles, and golden sap. We breathe in what we are killing. We breathe in our own loss, Damage, turning to more damage, and the sky is dark. Dark to warn us, dark to say, you are alone. Alone here in endless nothing. Alone in a blue breath, a breath that pulses life, that shares and binds. Breathe in and breathe out. Hold it carefully, your sustenance, your life. The earth is trembling. Well, I have the distinct pleasure of welcoming my my good friend, Megan Hicks, to the podcast to discuss her recent FKT on the Nolan's 14 route in Colorado, among many other things. But uh, Megan, hello. How are you? Welcome to the show. And uh, thanks for coming on. Wow, this is um, 
a pretty big thrill for me. Usually it's like <laughs> me grilling you. So role reversal. I love it. Thank you. I know we were just joking before we started recording about how hilarious of a role reversal this is after a decade or more of uh, you interviewing me after races and, and actually sometimes and, and most uh, fun, it's you and I teaming up to interview other people, which we've done a couple of times, but yeah. Now I get to uh, be the the person to to help tell your story, which is really great. After you guys uh, at I Run Far um, being so good to me throughout my career, so it's it's great to see you, and I appreciate you doing this. And of course, as I just alluded to, you are probably best known as being the uh, the boss or you know managing editor of of I Run Far. You can just You're call me boss lady. That's boss fine. Boss lady. <laughs> <laughs> the world leader in trail and ultra running news. And, uh, you know, obviously some of us know that you're also an extremely badass runner as is evidenced by your recent Nolan's achievement, but you've also been a champion in the marathon to sob your Bob Graham round finisher, two times Nolan finisher, a couple hard rocks to your name among many, many other things. So I'm, I'm glad we can, we can tell that side of, of your story. Um, but first, before we kind of get into that, how are how are you feeling now? Uh, what is it? A few days removed from your most recent Nolan's fourteen effort. Um, are you on cloud nine? Are you incredibly sore? Are you exhausted? How are you feeling physically and emotionally? Oh man, I feel really good. I'm definitely on cloud nine. I think that's the perfect descriptor. I'm not as wrecked as I thought I would be, which probably means I should have run harder. Um, I'm tired. Like it's like, I think you get really uh, sleepy um, from spending that much time at high altitude. Like I've been sleeping wicked long hours and you know, the, the sleep quality rating on my watch is coming in at like, you know, as close to a hundred percent as it's going to get. <laughs> so my body's definitely like, yeah, in like slight hibernation mode, but the, legs feel good. Actually, after this, I think I'm going to go to try to do my first like run, walk, jog, whatever it's going to be. Really? God, yeah. That seems quick. So when, when did you actually do the, uh, the Nolans, this most recent Nolans attempt, like how many days removed are we at this point? I think we're four days removed. I started on, um, about sunrise on Thursday, the 3rd of September and finished a little after sunrise on Saturday, the 5th. That's so cool. Yeah. I'm, wow. I'm surprised that you're already interested in, in getting out the door for walks and jogs because I'm now almost three weeks removed from doing the Wonderland Trail and I've literally barely done anything. <laughs> I ran, I ran 30 minutes yesterday and I felt like I was, you know, like a huge overachiever. So you're, <laughs> you're making me feel bad. Well, I've spent the last couple of days on the couch wearing like loungewear to work. So I'm starting to feel a little bit like a blob, like movement some sort of movement needs to happen <laughs> yeah well I guess I have walked my dog so that, that counts <laughs> sometimes like two or three miles so no big deal there Just, you go that's you know, what I'm gonna do little humble brag but um <laughs> so let's uh let's talk a bit about Nolan so obviously uh as we just mentioned you just uh finished four or five days ago you broke the FKT but this was your second finish of the Nolan's 14. You did it in 2016 and set the record on that attempt as well. And in doing so, you became uh, the first female to finish the route twice. And as a 
you know, amateur historian of this stuff. I think I'm correct in saying you're the fourth person to finish twice. And there were three men, Jared Campbell, Andrew Hamilton, and Joey Campanelli, who've all finished twice. And you're the first woman to do so. Um, so, you know, before we get into your 2020 attempt, can we talk a little bit about your 2016 run? Um, you know, to me, Nolan strikes me as sort of something that is so hard and such a proud achievement that once you do it once, you know, there's, there's no real reason to do it again. And there haven't been a lot of people that have done it twice. Um, can you give the short story of your 2016 attempt and what motivated you to go back this year to do it? Yeah. Um, so 2016, I had been um, sort of wrecking and spending time on the line. I think that was like my third summer in a row there. And I had spent some time um, with Anna Frost uh, when she was doing her wrecking. And um, when she went out to attempt the year before in 2015, it was un unimaginable to me what she did what, and what her and Missy Gosney were going to do. Um, and then like them finishing, uh, they went um, to the 14th peak in under 60 hours had a party there, um, had plenty of time to get down to the trailhead within 60 hours, but just chose to drink their champagne and have their snacks on the final summit. So in my mind, they were kind of like the um, <clears throat> lady establishers who like showed, okay, uh, doing this in 60 hours is possible. And so through their efforts, it made it imaginable to me. Um, so I went back there in 2016 and spent a really long time, like uh, over a month, I think total, uh, wrecking the route. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, just your vision of what you can do becomes shaped by um, time and what other people are doing. And so then I thought if I was going to finish it, it was going to be like by a thread, you know, I was going to come in, you know, gas out of the tank, barely making it. And, you know, you kind of like manifest what you believe you can do. And that's exactly what happened. I came in sputtering, barely under the 60 hour cutoff, um, more wrecked than I've ever been for anything in my life. Um, but do, knowing like, just knowing in my heart, there was more there. Like, yeah. I mean, I'm completely wrecked. There's nothing more I could do today, but believing that there's more that women can do there. And so like, that's what has motivated me to come back over the years is, yeah, just seeing that, there's a ton of space for women to improve on the route and, you know, what can I do myself and what can I do to kind of contribute to the women's story? That's awesome. And, and something I want to expand on a little bit. So as you mentioned, you, um, finished in, I think it was like 59, 35 in your first one. And just so we reinforce this for the listeners who may be not as familiar in order to be a uh, an official finisher, I guess, of Nolan's. It's supposed to be done in under 60 hours. You mentioned Anna Frost and Missy Gosney, who were the first uh, women to accomplish the route, even though there was a little bit of controversy about being at the top of the peak or down at the trailhead. I think we both agree that they established that it was going to be possible for women to go under 60 hours. And now here we are five years later and now it's, you know, about 50 hours. And I think, uh, you, you think that there's still a lot of room for improvement, which we can talk about later. But, um, I listened to your, uh, your interview with Brian Powell on I read far today. 
And, Just um, keeping ultra running awkward over there. <laughs> no, it was great. It was awesome. And uh, yeah, it's cool to, again, like see the tables turned on you. It's really fun to uh, <laughs> see you, you know, in the, in the athlete spotlight instead of the journalist spotlight. So it's cool. I kept but, um, wanting to like reach out and grab the microphone. It was so weird not to be holding it. <laughs> I know, I know. No, it's great. But he mentioned in your guys' discussion that it was your third attempt on the route, which then of course suggests that you've had one failure. Um, can you talk a bit about that failed attempt when that was and maybe how it contributed to your success in 2016 and maybe how it contributed to this most recent success too? Yeah. So, um, I finished in 59 and a half hours in 2016, went back in 2017 and failed. I got as far as 10 mountains. I didn't choose great weather, um, though I didn't know I was choosing poor weather. Um, I did another September outing, which uh, if you go in September, you're likely to miss the monsoons, like the thunderstorms of summertime. They're so common um, in the mountain west are usually finished or close to finished. But what we have in September are these kind of cold fronts that come through that may or may not bring wind and moisture with them. We're in the middle of one right now where like Colorado's getting dumped on by snow. It's kind of a really uh, not normal, huge one. So anyway, uh, a cold front came through the night before I started. And then another cold front came through on night one of my attempt. Um, and what I should have done is I should have gone up the first peak, found there to be snow and ice and wind and turned around and waited a couple of days. But I really like I was riding the confidence of having finished before I was riding on the belief that like I knew I could go faster um, and I had trained pretty hard. I was riding on what I thought was like really good fitness. And so I, I went on and I, I really shouldn't have the weather was poor. Um, I had a difficult time fueling in the nighttime. Like it was, it was one of those storms where you're in the clouds and it's snowing sideways and a couple inches of snow are accumulating on these trailless bouldered mountain tops. Um, it was really one of those things that like I didn't have enough kit to be there. So I was barely making my way around. I didn't eat. I didn't drink. I grew really tired and I quit after mountain 10. Um, it sucked. Like, you know, it, it really sucked, but in the long term, I'm really glad it happened because it taught me some important lessons about, about movement in the mountains and how to be. So after mountain 10, you must've been what, 35 hours in at that point. Something like, like that. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, yeah. Yes, yeah, so uh, I had to do this walk of shame. Like you don't just, you don't just like get to be in a car, or, like back in your house. You have to do this huge walk of shame off the mountains. It's very sad. Well, yeah. I mean, of course you, you learned a lesson about the weather thing, but I'm sure it also gave you a little bit more beta on the route and uh, maybe a little bit of extra motivation during your walk of shame to, uh, to do it right on your next attempt, which, uh, which you did, of course, just uh, a few days ago. So before we get into, into that, um, you know, I think it's important that we acknowledge the madness that we've all been living through this year and 2020 and coronavirus and all the, uh, you know, uh, consequences of it on, on all of our um, routines and lives and professions and things like that. And 
I think typically in the summer months, especially you guys are traveling around a bunch of times on multiple different continents, covering all sorts of different races, putting up a bunch of content that keeps our sport um, vibrant and healthy. And that is all, of course, disappeared this year. Can you talk a bit about how, you know, the whole COVID situation has impacted your professional life and maybe it, how it opened up an opportunity for you to, to focus a little bit more on, on this Nolan's project? Yeah, I mean, you said it perfectly. Usually uh, my life professionally is divided sort of half and half between doing race coverage at places around the world um, and putting out our, organizing our day-to-day editorial matter. Um, and that, uh, the organizing of the editorial matter is a pretty predictable thing and I can do it flexible times of day and um, from my couch or from a trailhead if I have cell phone service, like a really flexible um, scenario. But the race coverage part, obviously you're going to a specific destination. You're covering an ultra marathon, which almost always lasts through one night, occasionally two nights. Um, you know, we follow athletes like you and, you know, the, the, the competitive depth around the world. So that can take us to really obscure locations that involves like big travel there and back. And of course, uh, we don't sleep like when we're doing it and we always try to run every day, but it can be like this bullshit 30 minute. My legs are like double the size that they should be from airline travel type of thing. It's gar- it's garbage. It's garbage living and it's garbage running. Uh, but it's a really like, it's a really fruitful thing that we do. Like we, we really believe in it, but it's, it's hard on the body. <laughs> um, so yeah no competitive ultra marathons happening around the world this year, which means like, as of now, I would have done, I would have probably been to like eight different countries and spent eight or nine weeks covering races. And I didn't have that. So I could like create a real training schedule and follow it and like periodize my training and like pretend I was an athlete. And that was awesome. (laughs) Well, yeah, it's great. And of course uh, it contributes to success, you know, when you can focus like that, do you guys ever feel like a little resentment that so much of your summer months are so often focused on other people's competitive goals rather than your own? I mean, you guys, of course, do your, usually have some cool competitive ambitions every year, whether it's an FKT thing or, you know, most recently hard rock for both you guys. And, um, I'm just curious, like, you know, what, what that's like, if that resonates at all of like, man, I wish I could spend a little bit more time on my own adventures rather than, you know, single-handedly, uh, propping up the whole sport by covering other people's adventures. I think that's like a really honest question. And the honest answer is yes and no. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that I would thrive in the long term if I had a singular purpose in life and it was like very in interdirected, like, it's really fun to explore your personal boundaries for a period of time, but it's, it's a, it's kind of like an imbalanced existence. And I think we see that in a lot of professional athletes where they need to do other things also. And I think, um, I'm in that, I'm in that category for sure, where I feel like I need to have things in my life where I'm like contributing to the greater good or contributing to a community that I really believe in. And, trail running and ultra running, the sport as a whole, the community, just the dynamic, I feel really um, like compelled 
to do the life work that we do to help support the sport, grow the sport, support the athletes, you know, support people like you. So, yeah, I mean, of course it's hard. Like I love sleeping and covering races, uh, takes away like, you know, like good comfy time in bed. Um, I don't love sitting on airplanes for nine hours at a time, but I love what we do when we get to the places where we go. Yeah, totally. Well, we're all, we're all super indebted to you. And, you know, I guess one of the silver linings of this crazy year is that it gives people like you an opportunity to maybe hit reset a little bit and explore or reemphasize parts of your life that maybe you have to sacrifice sometimes. And I felt the same way this summer too, just like, you know, having, you know, no competitive goals to kind of train for. Of course, I did the Wonderland Trail recently, but having been um, in the Hard Rock um, field again for the second year and having that canceled, of course, if it if it weren't canceled, we would have gone out to Colorado to train most of the summer. And instead, we got to spend the summer here in the Northwest when it's just absolutely beautiful and explore our, our new home and mm-hmm. in a way that we wouldn't have had the opportunity to do nor really the desire to do. And so it's been a, it's been really good silver lining and it's good to be able to acknowledge that when, um, you know, it seems the world is crumbling around us, but. um, I mean, 2020 has been a really hard year, but there are a few blessings coming out of it. And I, I think you like really hit it there that it gives us all some introspective moments and close to home experiences that you're just like, more apt to skip over, I guess. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you also mentioned in your chat with Brian that, you know, you viewed this summer as kind of like the summer of women on the Nolan's 14 route specifically. And I thought it would be, uh, interesting or important context for those of us or those who will listen to this, who don't follow these things as closely as you and I do. Uh, to just give them a little bit of background on on what happened on the route this summer. Can you just kind of give the sort of uh, history or the recap of what has happened on the Nolan's 14 route, specifically as it applies to women in the last eight weeks or so? Yeah, so I'm not sure the uh, entire number of women who've attempted Nolan's, but it has to be almost double or triple a typical summer. Um, and there have been uh, four resets of the FKT since early July. Um, the first of July, or the first woman in early July to reset the FKT was Sarah Hansel. Um, she uh, lives in South Carolina, but has been coming out to a, in a real badass over there, like has top finishes and FKTs to her name. Like she's a pretty burly uh, mountain woman, and she's been coming out to do uh, work on the Nolan's line for a couple of years, made a couple of attempts, has gotten really close a number of times, and um, yeah, put it all together this year and finished in, um, I'm going to get the time wrong, but brought the FKT down by a couple of hours, and she did it in a really sexy style of going uh, unsupported and carrying all of her stuff from start to finish, so that was pretty awesome to see. <laughs> Yeah. So she did, it looks like, what would that be? 47 hours and 47, I'm sorry, 57, 43. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then, um, uh, what was it a month later or a little under a month later, Andrea Sansone, who's a 
um, Colorado nurse. She comes to Nolan's more from the mountaineering side than the ultra running or trail running side. Um, she's life partners with Andrew Hamilton, who I kind of think of as like the godfather of Colorado's 14ers. He's got loads of FKTs on mountains around Colorado, but probably his biggest one is that he holds the FKT for summiting all of the 14ers in Colorado sequentially, a record that I'm going to get it wrong, but it's something like eight, nine days or something like that. And there's 50 some odd Colorado 14ers. It's like category in the insane category. So Mm -hmm. anyway, she's sort of like a mountaineer type person. She too has been attempting Nolan's for a couple of years, inspired by her life partner, Andrew. She's put put in a couple of attempts, including two this year, um, ran into breathing problems on the first one, healed up, figured it out, took her fitness back out and ran 53 hours and uh, change. I'm going to get that not quite right. 5314. Yep. There we go. And then just a couple days after her successful attempt, I want to say like less than a week. Oh, and I guess we should clarify that Andrea and Andrew did it together in self-supported fashion. So they, um, yeah, they just slightly different category, but she reset the women's overall FKT in doing so. But just as she was recovering, Sabrina Stanley went out um, in supported fashion and um, woman handled the course in this super aggressive fashion that I actually got to witness firsthand because I got to pace her over, was it four mountains, I think. And so just got to see her woman handle things. And she brought the FKT down by another two hours to 51 hours and change. And that was just about three weeks before before you went. So thank you for providing that, uh, that context for the listeners. Cause it actually is really cool for, you know, those of us who are fans to, um, you know, just, yeah, as you say, the summer of women on the Nolan's 14 route and see it go down now four times, including yours and in totally different styles with the self-supported, the unsupported, and then, you know, you and Sabrina both doing the supported, uh, version of it. And, um, yeah, just kind of like seeing women take on this incredibly burly, um, objective and, and to do it in such cool style and, and to be successful. And again, I think it's one of the cool, uh, maybe silver linings of this whole COVID situation is it open up opportunities for, for people to focus on it a little bit more. And you just mentioned your, um, your support of Sabrina Stanley's record. And I thought that would be a fun thing to linger on for a minute too, because to me, she's like one of the truly underrated runners in the world right now. Um, You know, of course that could probably be disputed by some people, but at least in my mind, she seems that way as a hard rock champion, diagonal to food champion. And, um, you know, having laid down a super fast time on the Nolan's route in August, um, you mentioned that you were there supporting her. Um, and I read your interview with her on I run far, which I would definitely recommend everybody do as well. Um, what, um, what was like your role in, in her crew situation? Um, and did you know at that point that you were going to be making your attempt um, just a few weeks later and, and maybe how did you help support her and how did her attempt help inspire you? Yeah. So, um, I think Sabrina, so we're neighbors here in Silverton, Colorado. So, uh, we don't necessarily train with each other, but we see each other 
like we'll just run into each other on trails and do like text message type exchanges and occasionally do well this year like COVID safe outdoor like backyard gathering type things <laughs> so like I would consider her uh, you know kind of a growing friend of mine um, as like our lives kind of grow in their proximity to each other and she contacted me at the beginning of the summer at some point saying you know it looks like all the races are going to get canceled if so Nolan's is going to be my focus um, I understand if you don't want to help me because you are the FKT holder, but you know, if, um, if you do feel like helping me, I would love your help and just love your beta. And so we got to, we got to spending a lot of, um, time messaging and talking. Um, we went out and wrecked on the route, I think twice together, did two long, long days out wrecking. And then um, on her attempt days, I paced her over four mountains, um, Columbia, Harvard, Oxford, and Belford, which is kind of like the core, middle, more remote um, part of the Nolan's 14 course. Um, in terms of like how it sussed out for me, I had planned on, Nolan's had been on my, um, strong possibility list like basically since this winter like if you would ask my husband what I was training for he would have told you Nolan's and the snowman race which is a race that's was scheduled to be in Bhutan in October which of course has been postponed too um so I had been planning on first part of the summer doing Nolan's and then trying to turn it around and um do the uh snowman race a multi-day mountain race in Bhutan and so um yeah I don't Sabrina knew I also was planning on attempting Nolan's I think all of us women were very uh, we spent a lot of time talking to each other digitally on text message and stuff and sort of comparing notes and I think most of us knew the approximate windows that each of us were going to be going out in so mm -hmm. yeah I mean I think Sabrina knew I was going to attempt a few uh weeks weeks after hers for sure. Mm. So how did, uh, how did your experience out there with her maybe change how you were thinking about your own attempt and what was possible on the route? I mean, so I guess I'm leading into like, what was your goal in the route? Like was the FKT your goal? You'd already finished this, uh, this amazing objective in 2016 already. You knew that you could go faster you'd seen this record drop three times already in the summer. Were you going to, for just another finish or was your goal to improve what Sabrina had just, uh, had just done? I think definitely if I could set an FKT, that was my ultimate goal. But I mean, she ran 51.15, which I thought was really, really fast. Um, I, I mean, I think I could run... I objectively thought that on like a perfect day with no mistakes, I could get a little under 50 hours. And I set my splits for, this is before Sabrina attempted, I had set my splits for about 52 and a half hours, which I figured I could do uh, on a pretty good day. Like if you encounter a few problems, but they don't turn into like just really destructive things. Mm -hmm. So obviously when Sabrina ran 51.15, I thought, well, um, I probably am not going to get, I'm probably not going to get there, but I'm going to try. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, you stand, it, you stand on the shoulders of the, I think 
Tyler Green said it to you in your yeah. uh, podcast a couple of weeks ago. You stand on the shoulders of the people who came before you. And so, yeah, I mean, I did my best to, to yeah, use her as motivation to go faster. But yeah, I mean, it's it's two days out there and a lot of chips can fall. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's such a proud route and it's so freaking long. I mean, 50 hours is just insane. And I mean, when you compare it against even something like hard rock, you know, that's usually between 30 and 40 hours for, um, you know, the, the top women and, um, you know, to add at least 10 hours to that, seems like a, a huge ask and it, you know, you're not even adding a significant distance if any at all uh it's just all off trail and navigation oriented even higher altitude and um you know we go into i actually did a podcast with joey campanelli after his record attempt from or his successful record from earlier this summer where we talk a lot more about the route and stuff and i figure we can kind of touch that a little bit just for people who didn't listen to that um can you maybe talk about your um, your strategy, like maybe give a little bit of an intro to the route and why you chose to go northbound and why it seems like that's the direction that everybody seems to go in when they make their, their speed record attempts as opposed to the southbound route? Yeah, so Nolan's 14 is maybe a little bit self-evident in that it's composed of 14 mountains taller than 14,000 feet elevate altitude. All of the mountains are in the Sawatch Range, which is one of the sub-ranges of the Colorado Rockies. The route roughly stretches from Salida uh, in the south to Leadville in the north. Um, you, according to like the parameters of the folks who set up the route about 20 years ago, you can travel by whatever means you want, by whatever route you want, so long as you start and finish at the same trailheads and you tag all 14 peaks. Um, there's definitely some places where everybody follows the same spot and some spaces, some places where just depending on like what kind of terrain you like to motor around on, mm -hmm. uh, people will deviate and take different routes. Um, in terms of why people, uh, most people are going south to north now, I honestly have no idea because when I started wrecking the route, I think there are more people going north to south. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, maybe that was a trend of five or seven years ago, and now we're in a trend of people going south to north. I think for me personally, the reason why I like I have preferred the south to north direction. That's the direction I've made all three of my attempts is because um, Mount Princeton, which is the um, fourth mountain from the southern end, is a huge mountain. Mm -hmm. um, and when you're fresh early in the attempt, for me, it takes like six hours uh, plus some trail time to like connect up each side. So you're away mm -hmm. from your crew for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. At the end of the attempt, that means you're away from your crew eight hours or nine hours or something uh, like that. And it's the second night and it has historically broken. Like if a person gets broken, uh, going the North to South direction, it's Princeton that destroys them. And so I'm really intimidated by uh, tackling Princeton on the second night going North to South, which is why I go the other direction. <laughs> it's interesting though, because then if you go Northbound, if you go South to North, then you finish with Albert massive which also seem like just huge freaking mountains to 
to tackle at the very end. I mean, and, and probably two of the biggest vertical relief um, peaks on the entire route. Am I right or wrong about that? It's true. Um, however, the way that I look at it is that once you've cleared the summit of Huron, which is the fourth from the northernmost end of the line, uh, the navigation and the technicality goes way down. You uh, have a, a standard trail off Huron. You have a trail on both sides of La Plata. You have a trail for part of um, Elbert and also a trail for half of Massive. So it's a ton of vertical relief and a ton of actual miles. I think when you clear the summit of Huron, you have, so you're at the summit of Huron, which means you have to go down one mountain and do three more. It's over a 50 K. You mm. still have well over 30 miles to run and 14,000 feet of vertical or something dumb. Um, yeah. But it's, it's just a lot more clear and easier to yeah. travel. In my opinion. Yeah. I mean, that's a, I'm really glad you mentioned that because it totally makes sense for those of us who haven't spent any time on any significant time on the route. Just like, even though you finish with these two huge peaks, they're also probably two of the most summited 14ers in all of Colorado, or at least all of the Sawatch range. Therefore, even though they're bigger, uh, they have a little bit more of a distinct trail, uh, easier navigation, um, maybe more, uh, kind of like moral inspiration because you may bump into people out there and, you know, uh, that I think lifts spirits and maybe helps you move a little bit quicker. So yeah, that's interesting. I, I was, I was just fascinated by this whole thing having, observed the these fkts this summer and and of of course joey's attempt as well um i was just curious as to what made the northbound way uh you know the the selection of those that were trying to move really fast but that makes a lot of sense i don't it would it would be hard for me to argue at this point that going south to north is faster i mean joe grant put down a set was a 49 hour type time self Self-supported or unsupported? Unsupported. Unsupported, um, Going north to south two years back. And so Mm -hmm. I don't think that we have any data saying, you know, south to north is the faster direction. So for me, it'd be super exciting to see the trend, the trend reverse and people tackling it the other way. So I definitely going to happen. It's just a matter of when. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've probably got a few more weeks for, uh, people to go out there. So if the snow melts, <laughs> yeah, yeah, actually that's, that's true. I'd forgotten that that happened. Um, so to talk specifically about your run, what time of day did you start? What was the strategy behind that? And maybe talk through the first, the first 24 hours of what happened out there. <laughs> um, I started at 5.00 AM. I was, I had set up 52 and a half hour splits. And so that would put me finishing mid morning on the third morning. Um, and so I had set my start. I know you're shaking your head on our video (laughs) chat and that's like literally how I feel saying it. Like it sounds just so ridiculous. Um, but I set my starting time based upon the places that I really wanted to see in the daylight versus the nighttime. Um, so um, I really wanted it to be daylight by the time I peeled off the second summit of Tabawatch. It's kind of a gnarly descent, and I wanted to be able to have daylight for that. Um, I was doing an off-trail ascent of Yale, so I really wanted to get most of that ascent done before darkness um, descended on the first night. Um, 
And then um, for the second night, I had hoped to summit Huron, the ascent of Huron, um, which was, what is that mountain 11 going in the mm -hmm. south to north direction. I wanted to clear the really technical ascent in the daylight if possible. And so, yeah, um, 5 a.m. is also sort of a good time of day for me. I usually wake up like in the 4.30, 5 o'clock range. So it just meant getting up a teensy bit earlier. Mm -hmm. And then, so how, how did the first 24 hours go Oh, yeah, for you? you asked about 24 whole hours. <laughs> um, so my goal was to go uh, pretty slow for the first 24 hours. Um, I just felt there was so much that you could do if you could be really strong for the second day. Um, there's some terrain in the second day that you can really just motor if you're in fine form, and I wanted to try to be like that. Um, so I set up splits, really conservative splits the first 24 hours. I stuck on them pretty closely with the exception of the heat of the afternoon on day one. It was a couple degrees above normal. And when you hit the low points between the mountains, you could really feel it. So um, I just slowed my pace down. I spent a few minutes at creek crossings, like getting my shirt wet and soaking my hat and drinking extra water. And I think I maybe hit midnight of the first night 15 or 20 minutes slower than like yeah my ideal splits my 52 and a half hour splits um really wow so you were you were behind your splits that for the first a little part. bit wow yeah um but it wasn't it was intentional I mean I didn't I didn't want yeah I I know the heat affects me when I'm at altitude. Um, I have felt it a number of times out there training this summer, and I didn't want to feel that, you know, kind of that burn that sets in when you are going a little bit too fast in, in the heat at altitude. So I really tried to ease off. Um, nighttime came, uh, evening came on night one, and I picked up my first pacers, which was really fun. Um, on Mount Yale, which is mountain... Five. <laughs> mm -hmm. I picked up Courtney DeWalter, who paced me, and she brought pizza. I've heard of her. Yeah, I, yeah, you might have. We might have all heard of her. She was a fantastic pacer, though. That's she brought awesome. pizza. We watched the full moon rise, and uh, yeah, we motored our way over Mount Yale together. That is rad. Cool. Um, my second pacer was Vince Hyde. He's a friend of ours, a longtime friend of ours, a longtime volunteer of race coverage for I Run Far, just mm. like a really close friend. He's paced me for a lot mm. of my um, longer and stupid adventures. He picked me up um, along Cottonwood Creek, which is between Mounts Yale and Columbia, and paced me over Columbia and Harvard. Um, we chatted all the way up Columbia. It was like probably like the best therapy session either of us have had in a long time. It was a great way to pass the evening. Um, he also had some pizza. I can't remember what other snacks we had. Um, well, that's great. And ascending uh, Harvard, very close to the summit of Harvard, we saw an animal that probably was a mountain lion, which is, um, it was really glad. I was really happy to not be alone. Let's put it that way. Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> So that brings us to, 
uh, like you're that's the middle of the night sort of thing and and kind of the middle of the route at that point or yeah i want to say i hit the summit of columbia very close to 24 hours into the mm. attempt or i'm sorry the summit of harvard which is mountain seven um so it's mountain seven but i would call it not quite the halfway point like in terms of time um yeah right around 5 a.m on morning two cool we got all the way down to Pine Creek um, before the sun rose. Yeah, maybe around 6 a.m., something like that. That's awesome. So at that point, you're probably getting back uh, maybe ahead of your splits, and it's a great uh, lesson of, yeah, pacing yourself early and then being able to take big margins probably off of your planned splits later on in the day if you've pace things appropriately. And one thing uh, I wanted to talk about before we move to sort of like this, the second half, um, it sounds like the first half was like pretty smooth, low drama sort of thing. And it seems like maybe one of the things that contributed to that. And that I think is relevant to conversations about FKTs is picking the right day to go. And you Mm -hmm. mentioned in your Instagram post, and I wanted to expand on this um is like how you decided to go the day that you did it sounded like you had some expert advice meteorological uh advice from a friend as to when would be the best time to go and this is something i've thought a lot about recently with my recent wonderland trail thing and kind of second guessing and you know um and one of the things i think is really important when considering fkts is like you know with as as it compares to racing where you know which day you're going to go you know everybody's going to deal with the same conditions uh and where with fkts you can get very scientific very precise and um you know give yourself an opportunity to not only be successful but be more comfortable enjoy it more all those things have better sunsets etc um can you talk give any detail about um that part of uh your consideration before your attempt Yeah, I mean, I think weather is pretty close to everything when it comes to Nolans because you're spending so much time above treeline at high altitude and 14,000 feet in in the Rockies is sort of like the transition zone between being like in, you know, in sort of the lower altitude weather in the, in the, you know, the higher I'm not going to use the right terminology like meteorologically, but the mountains stick up far enough that they're like up into the, where you can get some of the really scary upper atmosphere weather type Mm. stuff. So um, not always do the forecasts that like lay people get match what you're going to get out there. And I really experienced that with my 2017 failed attempt where the forecast that us lay people were reading did not say it was going to be stormy on the second night, but it was, you know, uh, the, just the way that the, yeah, just the way that things interacted, it became stormy Mm -hmm. and a professional probably could have interpreted that, but a lay person um, couldn't. And so, um, so you're like looking at, at uh, forecasts for like Leadville or something. It's not going to tell you what the conditions are like on the top of Mount Massive, right? Well, there's a couple, there's a couple um, like weather forecasters that, you know, you can look up what the weather's going to be like 13,000 feet. Um, there's also mountain forecasts, which predicts uh, weather on mountain tops, but they just don't always show the details. Um, yeah. And it just, it didn't, 
the data that we had didn't match what it was going to, what it actually turned out to be in the field mm. last time. And so I was really intimidated by the prospect of screwing that up again. Like mm. you're putting so many eggs into a basket that I was, you know, I was, I really wanted to get it right. And so uh, we reached out to Chris Tomer, who's a kind of a famous meteorologist in um, Colorado. He's on one of the Denver news stations. You know, he's the guy who like waves cool. the weather <laughs> forecast each night. He's also a runner. He's a he's a fan of trail running and ultra running, and he's a high altitude mountaineer. He's climbed some big mountains around the world, so he's good at sort of predicting what the upper atmosphere is going to do. And so oh, I reached awesome. out to him and I said, "Hey, the weather, you know, for in about a week is looking really good." Um, what do you think of it? Is it actually going to be good? Plus, um, as you know, wildfire fire smoke has been a real issue with air quality around the Western U.S. this year. And so yeah. I was really afraid about of whether air quality was going to be too poor to, you know, be out there sucking wind for two and a half days or whatever. So I reached out to him and um, he was super awesome in giving, I think it was a four-day weather window. Um, and so, yeah, we picked, picked three days within it and went. <laughs> yeah. Cause you, you don't need just one good day. You ideally need, you know, two and a half, maybe three. Yeah. I feel like yeah. asking for 60 yeah. hours of good weather in the Colorado Rockies is yeah. like asking for like a home run shot in, yeah. you know, the eighth <laughs> inning when the game tied or something like, please. <laughs> yeah. You can't get too greedy. Yeah. yeah. All right. Great. Well, but then to bounce back to, you know, talking about your run, is there anything, you know, notable from the second half or do you want to just kind of talk through how, how things went um, from where you left off just a minute ago and any highs or lows that you think are interesting or notable? Yeah, I guess I would say I, um, so I had my 52 and a half hour splits. Um, I was behind them um, in, the, like I would say the middle of night one, I was behind them by 15 or 20 minutes, but um, I actually stopped paying attention to my watch at some point in the night. I just said, um, I've gotten to where I want to be. I feel the way I want to feel. Now I'm just going to move the way I think I should move. And so I like turned my watch off the logging, you know, part of it and um, just started going by feel. Um, so I haven't looked at my splits super closely, but my crew have said that um, most of them, I just picked off a few minutes here and there um, with the exceptions of Mount Oxford, which was mountain eight. And then uh, the final mountain, Mount Massive. Um, they said I went up Mount Oxford about 45 minutes faster than planned. And it's only like a two and a half hour mountain. I don't exactly know how that happened. I'm not sure what I was doing or what I was thinking, mm -hmm. but I guess I, I got up there pretty quick. Um, I had a crew station set up at the summit of Mount Be Belford, which was mountain nine, which is amazing to have crew <laughs> at 14,000 feet. Like how cool is that? I think Sabrina said that she had some help up there too. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So, uh, in the past I have had a crew, uh, at Elkhead pass, which is a pass you descend to after Mount Belford. Um, it adds a little bit of time on, but yes, yeah, Sabrina, I, um, Sabrina, Sabrina's aid station on top of Mount Belford went really well. And the crew who was going to go up there had not before summited a 14er. And so I thought it would be fun for them if the weather was good to put a crew station on top of a 14er so they could get their first summit too. 
making Kroger's canteen jealous at this point, I think. Yeah. Seriously. That's the, uh, the, the crew, uh, or the aid station, not the crew point, but the aid station in the hard rock 100 that is legendary and that you can look up and watch videos about online, but that's pretty awesome that, uh, it's good to have friends that are willing to do crazy stuff like that. So, I mean, I doing a supported attempt on Nolan's, you have to have a lot of friends who are Totally. Willing to stay up all night, drive down super bumpy, sketchy dirt roads, and mm. climb up high altitudes. So I, I'm pretty indebted to the seven or eight people who. That's amazing. Me. So, at what point did you realize that you were getting close to or ahead of Sabrina's splits? And at what point did it become evident that the FKT was achievable? And did that change your mindset at all in the middle of your run? So I tried not to think about it because um, I just felt like it would affect the way I was moving or the way that I was thinking, or maybe mm-hmm. cause undue anxiousness or like overexcitement. Um, uh, Kevin Schmidt, who's Courtney DeWalter's husband is like a master spreadsheet guy. And he told me afterwards that I didn't actually get close or didn't actually surpass um, Sabrina until um, mountain 13 climbing up Albert, Um, which that sounds totally right to me. I mean, I think I was just you know, if I was on 52 and a half hour pace at dawn on the second day and just chipping off here and there, I mean, I had a lot of time, a lot of time to make up. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I was, I, I really wanted to put myself in the position to just like hammer the hell out of the last mountain. Um, I thought I could do it really fast. Like I know it really well. And then I, in my head, I just thought, well, I would work backwards that if I was feeling decent on mountain 13, I would try to push it a little bit. If I was feeling decent on mountain 12, I would try to push it a little bit. I ended up needing to take it a little bit easy on mountains um, 11 and eleven and 12 here on in La Plata. It was, again, the heat of the day. Mm. And I could feel the heat. And yeah, so I just took extra time at the water crossings. I probably soaked my shirt like 10 times on the second day. Um, I had been reduced, like I couldn't eat solid food anymore, but I was still getting in liquid calories pretty well. Um, so I was sucking down the, sucking down the fluids pretty like robustly and just trying to, trying to get to the cool of the nighttime. And it, it all worked out just like that. Like I, um, I don't think I felt wonderful or moved wonderful on mountain 13. Like I was just kind of coming back mm-hmm. from the heat of the day at that point, but I could feel I could feel it was coming and like, I was going to be able to roll shortly. Yeah. That's awesome. And so, you know, ultimately you run probably fairly quickly down uh, Mount Massive and finish in a new fastest known time of um, 50 hours and 30 minutes ish. Was it? 32. I believe. Yeah. 50 hours, 32 minutes. And yes. so in doing so, you took more than nine hours off your, uh, your previous run, uh, in 2016, which was also a fastest known time at that point, which I think is just illustrative of, um, you know, the progression of the sport and, and also 2020 being more of like the year of the FKT. Um, what were your feelings upon, upon finishing and, um, you know, did you, did you have a, a huge sense of, of relief and achievement? And, um, did you feel like you'd, you'd sort of overperform for what you could, what you were expecting? I was super happy. Yeah. I mean, I, 
I feel like not always in ultra running, you always go in with a plan and not always do you end up being able to like manifest that plan either. Very rarely (laughs) do you ever manifest a plan. Well, and sometimes it's because you have to respond to the dynamicity of what's going on around you, but sometimes you just screw up and, you know, Mm -hmm. you just can't stick to your, can't stick to, you know, the nutrition or your pacing or whatever. Yeah. And I was really like, yeah, I was, I was pretty stoked that um, I was able to have a plan, stick with it, see it through for like more than two days. Like, yeah, pretty happy to be able to do that. (laughs) It's so cool. And, um, you know, to, you know, hear you say that you're already interested in going back out there and moving around a little bit is, is super impressive, but it makes me curious because I've, I've never gone longer than like 20 hours personally. And, um, I'm wondering like these 50 hour efforts, how does it compare to something like hard rock for you, which is what 35 ish, 34, something like that. Um, do you find that, um, yeah, you, you feel similarly racked or more racked or less racked? Like how do, how do the efforts kind of, how are they similar and different? Yeah, I think the feeling is different. I mean, there's more true running in hard rock. Like there's a lot of miles of kind of hard packed dirt road or hard packed trail Mm -hmm. running and that impact adds up over the course of hours and hours. Mm -hmm. Um, The Nolan's course is really interesting because it's just a lot of different movements. It's, there's some trail running, you know, there's some flat road stuff and some flat trail stuff. And there's a ton of just steep and like really variable downhill terrain. Like sometimes it's boulder hopping. Sometimes it's like the most beautiful soft tundra that is almost no impact on your body. I think it just overall, I think it's like less physically racked, like less, your muscles are less racked, but you're definitely, at least for me, I'm more sleepy. Yeah. Yeah. It's just um, a long time to be up above tree line. It sure is. Yeah. So one other thing um, sort of in the details that I'm, I'm curious to get your, opinion on and your perspective on and we've touched on this a little bit is just the different styles in which people are approaching fkts and like i said i had joey campanelli on the podcast after he broke the men's record and of course he chose to go fully unsupported and he's quite i mean he's a character and i think you know his personality is different than a lot of people who will approach this but he was adamant that he didn't find that to be a disadvantage. In fact, he thought it was faster to go unsupported on the route. Of course, as you mentioned, Sarah Hansel did the same thing earlier this summer um, before her record was broken by somebody who did it self-supported, who then had their record broken by somebody who did it supported. And this is the overall record. I guess I should say that Sarah Hansel still holds the unsupported record. I believe. And Andrea Sansone still holds the self-supported record, but now Sabrina Stanley and then yourself broke the overall record in supported style. So it's probably confusing for people who aren't familiar with ultras, (laughs) but it will make sense to most of the people who are listening. Um, What's your opinion on, on those different styles and like, do you, and how did you approach the whole crew and pacer thing? Because this is also something I've been thinking about a lot as it relates to my recent FKT. 
attempt on the Wonderland Trail and just like learning in retrospect, oh, you have to, you have to really prepare for these things in a different way than you prepare for races. Um, like, do you see any world in which doing this unsupported might be faster? And also what was your sort of strategy as it relates to the crew and pacer part of it as your, as part of your, um, supported record? Well, there's a lot there. Like this is a whole podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, because the, the world of, you know, like longer distance fast packing and through hiking, um, most of those people are traveling, you know, doing those efforts, um, self-supported, you know, they're carrying, you know, a week's worth of stuff They're Um, they've got resupply set up, whether they're going to a town or they've mailed a food box to themselves. So like, um, Joey Campanelli, for example, he comes from that world. Like that's where he's done most of his motoring. And so he's had months of his life out on trails where he's, you know, used to carrying a heavier pack where, um, as us trail runners and ultra runners, we're the ones with months of running under our belts of carrying these teensy little packs and seeing people every two or three hours who miraculously like put things back in them. And we just keep, you know, motoring, motoring along. So I am, um, I'm totally not surprised that Joey went into it with that mindset of, you know, use the skill set that he has developed through his long distance, uh, through hiking, um, to do that. And, to be totally honest, when he ran 41 hours and then when, you know, just a week or two later, Sarah ran 57 something and both of them doing it in the unsupported style, I put on a heavy pack and started hiking around the Sawatch Mountains thinking, oh, hell, this is the faster way to do this. Like we waste a ton of time with our crews. Mm-hmm. So in my head for a couple weeks time, I thought, this is how I'm going to also attempt this year. So I started lugging a 13 pound packer on, which is what I thought I would need in terms of gear and food. Um, and I would climb up these mountains and I would look at my watch and I'd say, I just did this 30% slower than I can do it with a regular size pack. I can't do what they do. I don't know how they do it, but I can't do it. So I went back, then I went back to the, well, I'm going to, I'm not a big enough athlete to lug all this stuff around. So I'm going to have to do a supportive attempt. So um, the Nolan's 14 is in this really interesting gray zone in that you don't need to carry a lot of like gear. If you get your weather right, you just need a couple of layers. You're not out long enough to need to do a real sleep. You might want like a bivy sack for a, a, a short, like kind of emergency dirt nap to like recover the brain a little bit. You don't need much gear. It's just food. Like how much food do you need to eat for the time that you're out? Um, so it's in this really gray zone that you can be carrying a pretty little pack, but man, I don't know. Like those guys must not eat that much because for what I wanted to bring with me, I just couldn't heave the pack around. So I, yeah, I mean, I have to like give huge props to Joey and Sarah for putting on heavy packs and motoring over 45,000 feet of climbing and descending Mm. uh, off trail terrain. What they did is like it, it, even saying that out loud or looking at it on paper doesn't translate to how, how, what a difficult thing they did. Super badass. Well, and that's why I was so interested to talk to Joey uh, and why I'm now like a huge, huge fan of his is like, 
I had never heard of him before his attempt. And then he just smashed the the men's record and um, just, uh, yeah, what you mentioned, which I think is such a good point that I hadn't even considered is his experience on the Appalachian Trail um, and doing similar things. Yeah, put him in a position to where his mindset is much more, um, I guess, conducive and his skill set is much more conducive to just being out there alone and, and maybe the complication of trying to organize crew would stress him out to the point where it might, it might slow him down and he's used to carrying the, the extra weight. So, and I think Sarah, I don't know much about Sarah either, but I think Joey mentioned when I talked to him that she was out doing the continental divide trail or something like that when, when they met. So maybe she has similar sort of multi-day or uh, long trail experience. So, yeah, she's done some, you know, like, um, one day to two day type outings, Mm -hmm. self-supported, carrying a big pack. She's fast packed to the Nolans route, like independently Mm -hmm. for four or five days type of thing. So, I mean, she's sort of in that same realm of carrying a big pack ground. Yeah. It's, I would love to be able to emulate that style because I think it's really sexy for Mm -hmm. like traveling around remote wilderness terrain, but man, like I'm not badass enough. (laughs) Neither am I. I'm not not badass enough to go support it yet. I still need a a few years of uh, toughening up, I think, before I ever make an attempt on that route, but. Oh, let's see. I'm waiting for you, Dylan. Uh, Yeah, right. Yeah, right. No, um, well, it is, it is really cool. And I think it it only makes everything uh, more interesting um, you know, because you can't approach it in different styles and you can sort of tune it to your own skill set, and you can, can game it in ways to shave minutes off here or there. I mean, when I talked to Tyler, he mentioned something that I hadn't even considered that, you know, in retrospect, just seemed genius to me and that he just walked through the, the few aid stations that are available on the Wonderland trail. Whereas, you know, I approached it as a race and stopped like it was an aid station, you know, and, um, you know, I just think it's, is something I've been thinking about a lot now in the last couple of weeks since I did my thing is like approaching FKTs as something that are in a different way than races. Obviously they're, they're very similar in a lot of ways too, but there's um, different stuff that you can control that you can't in racing or um, different strategies that you can employ that, that might end up being beneficial, which I think is, is fascinating. Um, So kind of closing things out, Megan, thank you for your time. This has been super fun. Um, I want to touch back on something you mentioned at the very beginning, which is this idea of like history and walking the path of people that came before you. And this being the summer of, of women on Nolan's and you mentioned this. I know your closing question was going to (laughs) go. Well, you know, I figured it's a, it's a good place to leave on a, uplifting note and and on a note that I think embodies the what makes the sport cool and you mentioned this not only in your your Bob Graham round report from a few years ago when you did that um, but also in your Instagram post Um, can you just like maybe end with a few words about you know the women who came before you the success that they had how it contributed to your success and how you hope you know future uh, generations of of women and and uh and men uh, potentially uh will approach these types of projects and the sport as a whole there's a lot there also another whole (laughs) podcast um yeah i mean i for me it's 
I'll probably stay on talking about women just because I'm pretty jazzed on what's happened uh, with women on the Nolan's route in 2020 and just what women are doing all over the place. Like I, I watch social, social media and I'm seeing women go out and do backpacking trips for the first time. You know, these trail runners and ultra runners with incredible backcountry experience uh, who, because there's no racing this year, they're taking their skills to exploring the wilds around them using their own two feet and their, you know, their, their moms and their people with jobs and they have, you know, they're carving out space and time and conversation in their, in their, in their family to, to make space to do these things that are important to them. And for me, it's like, whether they're going fast or whether they're doing it for the first time or the hundredth time, or whether it's, um, you know, like a husband saying, yeah, I'll watch the kids all weekend. I'll figure out how to do this so you can go, you know, run around a mountain or whatever. For me, um, there's just been so many things that have been shitty about 2020 and, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic, but like seeing women use their bodies and their brains and to see the communities that support them supporting that has been a huge upside. Um, I can't tell you like how exciting it is for me to like talk to a, a person on a trail and have a woman say, this is my first 14er or my first backpacking trip. And I've actually, you know, had the fortune of going out with a couple women on overnight trips this year. And it was their first, you know, fast packing trip where they, you know, tried to pack a little pack and move quickly through wild terrain and just watching them watch the world like mm -hmm. through their own eyes like we need that mm. like we need the wilds we need to move our bodies like there is peace and solace and recovery from all the crazy shit that's happening when you leave your home and you put a pack on your back whether it's big or small and you just go out for a while and so um the wilds are a place for everybody um though historically it's been more of a home for men than women and yeah just seeing women find a home out there and growing comfortable and growing growing space for themselves is pretty much the coolest thing of 2020 so far for me very well said it's beautiful. <laughs> no it's it's great and uh, I'm sure there's a lot of women out there who are finding inspiration from from your effort and from what Sabrina did and you know from Caitlin's uh Wonderland Trail from a couple weeks ago which was I was at and which was super inspiring for me a friend here from Portland Alex Borsuk's out on the Wonderland Trail right now going unsupported right and, this second right yeah right, right now yeah <laughs> so shout out to her hopefully uh she's uh, not suffering too much right now <laughs> a little so, suffering so we sign up for yeah exactly but no it's it's a great point and uh I think that's a I, I agree that it's one of the most exciting things about our sport right now is just the the development um and just the camaraderie and the dynamic of the women's side of the sport I think it's just really really cool and uh we can we can all thank you and and your partner at Brian Powell at I Run Far for for helping the sport maintain in a healthy trajectory and uh, maintain that spirit uh, for the for the next generation of people who come. So, Megan Hicks, thank you so much for joining. Um, it's been a, a pleasure to chat with you, and uh, hopefully we'll we'll see each other at a race sometime in the near future. 
And if we don't see each other at a race, we see each other at some random adventure. That would be great. (laughs) Thanks so much. Thanks, Dylan. Thank you, Megan. And thank you guys all for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, again, it's always helpful to throw a rating or review my way on whatever podcasting platform it is that you use. I would definitely be thankful. Uh, Also throw Megan some love digitally on Instagram or Twitter or elsewhere. Let her know if you appreciated her contributions to the podcast. And of course, again, definitely love it if you you could throw them uh, some support online uh, with Patreon subscription or one-time donation on ironfar.com. Again, you can see those links in the show notes. Thank you guys so much for listening. I have so much fun doing this. I hope you guys all enjoy it. We'll talk to you soon.